Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Professor Joy Porter. Joy is a Professor of Indigenous and Environmental History at the University of Hull and also a Leverhulme Major Research Fellow. I talked to her about her research looking at the life of Canadian war, war poet Frank Pruitt. Joy spoke to me from her office in Hull. Joy, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and, and your interest in Frank Pruitt and the Great War? And I hope I pronounced his surname correctly. Yes, it's Joy Porter. Um, I'm someone who runs a research group uh, at the University of Hull. It's called Treated Spaces. You can check us out on treatedspaces.com. And we do about two and a half million quids worth of various sorts of funded work, uh, working with Indigenous people all over the world. Uh, We've just started a new book series called the Elements, Cambridge University Press, Elements in Indigenous Environmental Research. And we do lots of other things. We have an upcoming exhibition at the American Museum and Gardens in Bath that starts in March, if anybody's interested. And for the last 20 odd years, I've been thinking about the Indigenous world, thinking about modernity, thinking about primitivism. And that's what we do. We try and do good in the world. And this book is a book that grew out of another book called The Cambridge Companion to Native American Literature. And I was editing it and I came across Pruitt and he was described as being Iroquois. And I'd worked on the Iroquois for a long time and written books on on key Iroquois intellectuals or Haudenosaunee, as they're called, um, proper name of the Iroquois. And it struck me as not quite right. And I got funded to research that not quite rightness. And 10 years later, there's this book with Bloomsbury. And it's been a fascinating journey. And it's um, it's very nuanced because I know there's some Iroquois people who were very proud of Frank Pruitt as being Iroquois or Haudenosaunee. But this book problematizes that. And I'm not saying he's a pretendian, as a, an Indigenous colleague of mine calls them, but he's someone whose Indigenous identity really needs to be thought about carefully. We will explore that in the next few minutes. So who was Frank Pruitt? Frank Pruitt, I think, is the most interesting of the war poets of the First World War. He's one you probably haven't heard of because he's... I suppose mainly because he didn't have enough money to promote himself and keep writing. But at the time when he was the lover of Siegfried Sassoon and he was hanging around at Garsington Manor near Oxford and when he was getting published by Virginia Woolf, um, friends with Lytton Strachey and so on, people thought that he would be a much better known poet than Siegfried Sassoon or, or no one really heard of Wilfred Owen. So I think... He is the most interesting of them all because he speaks to now rather than then. And he said this himself. He said, I don't speak to the cant of the modern age. He was very determinedly speaking to us, the generations in the future. And I also think the reason we haven't heard about him is because 
his topic wasn't the pity of war and his topic wasn't any kind of vainglorious promotion of war. His topic was trauma and what it means to suffer and be overwhelmed by fear and then resiliently battle through and cope. And that's very much a topic, I think, that's of today rather than maybe of the 60s or the 70s or various other peaks of interest in the First World War. You've touched you've touched on this already, but why did you write the book and what is your central argument? I think books, if they're any good, are probably an affliction rather than a choice. Um, I'm, uh, I do wonder, as I'm having written a couple of biographies, if they aren't a form of haunting where someone else's past uh, becomes your present and then you reconstruct painstakingly using the archives their story, their suffering, their triumphs, their life, and not only them, but their context and what it meant to be them. You know, what does it mean for us to be doing this right now? What does it mean for him to be shell-shocked in 1916, so forth? Well, you know, these big questions. I suppose, though, I wrote the book because I'm fascinated by identity, by what it means to be caught up in points of enormous change, as he was, and I think as we are also right now. And I also wrote the book because there was clearly a misapprehension about who Pruitt was and, and what it meant. So in terms of central argument, it's a biography. So it's a new story about someone who doesn't exist in the panoply of books available to us about the poets of the First World War. So there's a, a kind of new research in the conventional sense. And there's new archives in there as well from the um, National Archives in Scotland, which I thought were fascinating. Uh, and then there's a series of thematic new arguments within it about what it means to experience trauma, um, who he met and what it means that he did know these people and how he knew them. But the biggest argument within it is to do with how we cope with change. And I think Pruitt has a big lesson for us in that regard, because I do think we cope with change by going backwards and taking pieces of the past with us. And often it's invented pieces of the past. And for him, it was this invented idea of being Indigenous, of, of being Iroquois or Haudenosaunee. And I think we're all doing that in our lives especially as the pace of change um, increases. You know, we're now in this fourth industrial revolution and the world's getting ever more digital and ever more close to our bodies and, and minds, the digital world. And I think um, the lessons that he has to teach us about how we cope with the modern world and pace of change that's associated with us, with it are, are really, really valuable. He also has lessons for how we can cope with trauma uh, that I think are very much of the moment. Now, do bear in mind that Pruitt is not your conventional First World War poet, as it were. He is someone who faced enormous suffering and was overwhelmed by fear, but fights again in the Second World War and sees war not as something to fight against, as it were, but something that, and not as something that's a noble duty, but simply something that's ever with us. And he's got a certain resignation to war and conflict. And that, I think, is an, an interesting new way of, of comprehending poetry in this period and also comprehending dissent, because it's um, 
it's a different story than the one that's conventionally taught about the 19th and 18th. So let's start with Pruitt's early life in Canada. Can you tell me about his family and early childhood? He grew up in Ontario in a rural context, you know, with corduroy roads, you know, where they cut down the trees and so on. So it's, it's quite, it's bushy, it's, it's wild. And there were a lot of Iroquois people in the area that it's likely he knew. You know, there was another poet, Pauline Johnson. There's also um, you know, the famous runner Tom Longboat, who was well known at the time when marathon running was very fashionable back then. Pruitt grows up in a real hellfire and brimstone Protestant, hardworking farming context. And there's frankly not a lot of love in the household. And it's very much um, the Old Testament version of the Bible. And uh, happiness is something for after you die, after salvation, not really something for now in this world. And young Pruitt grows up rejecting that very soon after he he signs up. And um, he did write for the BBC and performed and talked about growing up in rural Ontario and the harshness and the lovelessness. You can kind of see why he adopted an Indigenous identity because the context he grew up in is so harsh and loveless. But to some extent, he understood it because he realised there's no need for poetry when you're hacking down the bush to survive as you know, and Canada is a harsh climate and a cold one. Um, so he realized he was a, a flower out of context, that, that, that this was not his primary or certainly spiritual home. Um, so his childhood was probably quite harsh. And um, his grandfather in particular was very much hellfire and brimstone Protestantism. And really the only affection he got was from a young runaway called Ben, who would help him, he would help Ben put the animals to sleep at night. And Ben was a Bernardo's child. That really is the only memory he has that's warm and, and kind. But when he gets, he's at the University of Toronto when he enlists. And at this point in his life, he's very much, as you might expect, wildly patriotic, very keen to see Canada take its place on the nation stage as a young nation that's discreet from the empire, the British empire, and that has a, a valour and a, an identity of its own, that it's asserting as an ally, but also on the world stage. So Pruitt really sees himself, he writes poetry about about being, you know, the representative of Canada. He sees himself in that sense. So you've touched on on some of his enlistment mo- uh, motivation for, for joining uh, the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Where did he serve and where did he fight uh, during the First World War? We think he served at all of the kind of worst um, theatres of war. We know he was at the Somme. We think he was at Passchendaele. We understand him to be a Vimy that's that emblematic uh, conflict for Canada. And what he experienced was particularly grim. Um, there's poetry where he's clearly inured to being exposed to constant violence and you know everything you might expect in terms of um, blood and coping with death, men near death, and having to, to develop a carapace of not really reacting 
as one might in time, you know, he learns to cope with it. Um, eventually, though, after about a year, he is blown up uh, and we think and is thrown from a horse and suffers really terrible back injury. He's invalided back to uh, Britain uh, to a, a hospital, we think, near Oxford. And he really suffers a bad back and quite crippling back pain for the rest of his life on and off. But that is by no means the worst thing that happens to him. The worst thing happens sometime after that, where he is again blown up and this time is buried alive. And I go into some depth in the book about what it means to be buried alive and, you know, to have your lungs fill up with soil and to be straining every muscle to try and escape and to face death, you know, the, the slow prospect that, that you may never be reborn out of the earth. And this is what triggers quite extreme shell shock in Pruitt. And then he is invalided again uh, back to various hospitals in Britain to be treated for profound shell shock. And he has the works. He is... Um, He's, he's jabbering, his hands are shaking, he's, he's, his whole body is convulsing in, in, in the tremors that accompany being overwhelmed by fear. Uh, and he's really not okay for the rest of his life, but particularly not okay for the next 10 years. Uh, yeah. So do finish if you need to. So I'm just unmuting. I thought you'd come to a natural pause. Well, when he's, when he's at one of the first hospital um he goes to Craig Lockhart, which people may have heard of, but he's also at a place called Lennell, where um, on the borders of Scotland and England. And this is where he meets Siegfried Sassoon, who at the time is having a, a kind of lull in his life because the young Wilfred Owen uh, has died at the front and he's coping with this loss and along comes this extremely good-looking Frank Pruitt who in a way kind of fulfills Sassoon's um, need for artistic sensitive and beautiful people and really that starts a, a love affair certainly from Sassoon's point of view uh, between Pruitt and Sassoon and he's very enamored with him and sees Frank Pruitt who while he's at the front, is referred to as Toronto and, and has taken on and takes now takes on even more this Iroquois chief identity. Um, Sassoon really sees him in that role and writes beautiful poetry to him. It was a fine, brave. And all the fantasies that are still out there, I mean, you need only look at Johnny Depp's movies or perfume advertising or whatever, all these fantasies of the sexually alluring noble savage Sassoon projects onto Frank Pruitt. And uh, Pruitt, of course, has absolutely no money and is a poet, and is of a literary bent. So he's open to Sassoon and his aristocratic um, milieu, uh, to, and, and Pruitt has a gateway to a much posher world through Sassoon. He also, later on, when he gets to Oxford, meets Robert Graves, probably, arguably, a much greater poetic talent. And um, Robert Graves... Who has, who has an Irish background, finds great affinity in the indigenous side of Pruitt or what he perceives as the indigenous side of Pruitt. And Graves believes him to be Iroquois and calls him that right up to his death. 
and on an always sees Pruitt as this epitome of the Indigenous in the 20th century. And it's a very close and serious friendship. And Graves publishes his work and the two are very intimate and they talk about um, all three about what it means to suffer shell shock and be traumatized. And um, and what happens when you suspect that maybe, in fact, you never really made it back? Graves and, and Pruitt talk about this, about actually being dead and not knowing it. And they have really quite existentially complex conversations and letters between the two where they're not entirely sure that they actually made it home which I find absolutely fascinating. And that feeling of uh, the veil between reality and, and, and fear and imagination is slipping. And you can see them wrestling with this in their correspondence and to some extent in their behaviour. How does all this process shape uh, Pruitt's creativity? Uh, does this really influence his poetry, uh, you know, in the late latter part of maybe 1919 and into the interwar period? Does it really sort of shape the, the poet he becomes? I think trauma is what fundamentally shapes the, the poet he becomes. And I think he's very much someone who plows his own furrow. He's not impacted in, in the same way. I mean, Graves was very much affected by Sassoon, uh, I would say. And um, when Sassoon first experiences the front, um, Graves tells him that he's going to drop all the flowery language when he hits the reality of the trenches. And, and Sassoon doesn't really believe him, uh, but he's right. And all of them kind of go away from the Georgian lyricism towards a much more honest um, and expressive and petty-filled reality. Graves, of course, in his own way, goes into a primitivist fantasy of his own as his life develops. Um, but for Pruitt, he disdained really fitting into any existing categories. And his concern was, how do I cope with being buried alive? How do I cope with those feelings of what psychologists would call suicidal, suicidal ideation? How do I cope with feelings that I might actually be dead or I might prefer to be dead? He sees the dead around him. He interacts with what he imagines is them, you know, draped over furniture, walking down Piccadilly. He is um, living with the dead in his mind all the time. So his poetry will be about things like being hag-ridden as he goes for a walk um, in the gloaming, in the dark, just as darkness falls, and feeling the clammy grasp of someone who probably died in the trenches, but their spirit is clasping around him and riding on his back as he walks home. And this sense of being surrounded by the dead and being it being impossible for Prue to escape them, even through death, because he even feared the idea of suicide because he worried in case he, it wouldn't actually be the end of his life and he'd actually be stuck in this limbo that he felt he was in through trauma and through experiencing so much death in the trenches. He actually feared um, even killing himself. So these are really dark places that he was going in his poetry and in his correspondence, particularly with Graves. So soon, of course, is always trying to get him to toddle off to Italy or Venice or Rome and have fun and um, party effectively. 
But for Pruitt, he's very much mentally stuck in the trenches and working it out on the page. So what happens to him after the war? What sort of jobs does he do? And does he, his relationship with Graves and Sassoon continue? Yes, but of course, Graves, whose story is fascinating, he Graves throws himself out of a third-story window in an attempt, I think, to be reborn after a fashion, along with a probably very ill-advised partner, that romantic partner that he had at the time, who also did something similar. Graves clears off to uh, an island um, to write, and that's where he writes some of his greatest work. Uh, So theirs is a a friendship that's maintained by correspondence. Uh, But Sassoon and Pruitt are habitués of a literary salon of Lady Ossoline Morel, in Oxford, and all the great literati are there, and Sassoon pays for Pruitt to to be in that orbit and to go back and complete his studies at Oxford. And then thereafter, Pruitt takes on various jobs that are linked to the land, to the environment, to agriculture. So he does experimental farming at Oxford, and he takes a trip back to Canada, And then one of the other things he takes with him out of the trenches is alcoholism, which is a story that's very prevalent for many people. Um, The alcohol has its impact and he ends up working as an editor for various magazines that are all sort of like country life. Um, And in many ways, Pruitt as editor pioneered the whole country life genre of magazine. But he's fond of drinking. He's a libertine snuff taker, um, doesn't really keep between the tram lines of sexual relationships. So there's a progressive uh, kind of decline in his status. And um, he spends a lot of time thinking about what it means to have technology applied to the land, what it means to take people out of the fields to, 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 you know, they've already cut down the trees and closed the land. What does it mean as the 30s progress for farmers to um, not be getting a fair price for their milk? He works for the milk marketing board and so on. But what does it mean, this increasing alienation from the land and from working with the soil? Uh, what what does that mean? He, he thinks about this a lot. He writes a novel about it, uh, and his poetry is full full of of these thoughts about it, a technological world and increasing use of fertilizer. And and Pruitt, in a way, his hands are covered in blood with this because he is part of an Oxford organization that helps introduce the first combine harvester to the UK. And with that comes a series of social changes. You, know, you don't have the winnowing and threshing and so on that people used to do. And that increases the whole urbanization and, and consequent inequality that develops. All of these thoughts are, are part of Prout's novel, part of his correspondence, and part of how he, he thinks as a, as a magazine editor and, and as a human being. The worst thing that happens to Prout after the war is he keeps drinking. And, and he doesn't fully resolve the shell shock or the, the legacy of having been at the front. He, he doesn't come fully to psychological peace with, with this. But then you could say that neither did Graves or Sassoon, uh, each in their own way. I suppose Sassoon has a better death uh, because he finds spiritual peace through 
taking on or taking fully to heart the lessons from the Catholic Church, whereas uh, Graves a much more complex character. Um, but I suppose he's still prepared to fight in the Second World War, and he's still someone who retains a deep attraction for many of the key figures in the literary world uh, from the 20s. That brings me to my penultimate question is, why have we heard so little of him? To be fair, I didn't know about him until I, you know, looked at your book. And that 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 testifies to my ignorance. And I've been doing this podcast for nearly five years. And it's just that sort of question struck me. Why don't we know him when we know Wilfred Owen and co so much better? I think because it's probably harder to do what I've just done and find a spare 10 years, you know, whilst you're having a professional life and doing other things and writing other books. But but it's really, you know, you, there aren't many of us around who are kind of doing primary research in this way anymore. And the First World War, there was a big brouhaha around the, the you know, the centenary and so on. But the sorts of research that were being done weren't necessarily furrowing new ground, tilling new ground, looking at new archives. I think that's become a little bit more difficult to do in academia these days. And the other thing I think is that he didn't have private income and private wealth. And if you think of people like Sassoon, they're landed aristocracy they're self-publishing their own poetry. They know everyone who's everyone from the Asquiths to, you know, Edward Marsh and all the all the, the highfalutin top people. So the poets of this world who are, who are not so rich, and really he was someone who benefited from patronage of the very rich. I suppose if he was alive today, he'd be a sort of talented Mr. Ripley or a someone hanging around the, the super rich of Silicon Valley. Um, so to find people like that, that were a big deal at the time, but didn't have the resources or the connections. I mean, he is published by Virginia Woolf and, and, and so on, and has two books of poetry completed. And that kind of explains why you haven't heard from him. But also, who in the 30s or the 60s really would want to hear about trauma and the complexities of how you deal with trauma and how you survive overwhelming fear in, in the combat context. These were not sexy topics. And I mean, you, you have to bear in mind that, you know, Freud, the, the Freudian revolution is is in its baby steps when, when he's blown from a horse and then buried alive. It's only now that we're talking about mental health issues and PTSD has been given a diagnostic context in what, 81 so the things he's speaking to were not hot, um, really, for most of the 20th century. I think it's only now that we're reading people like Pruitt and thinking, how interesting, someone who fooled people who were rich and famous, that's fun. Someone who dealt with really deep and profound issues linked to war and someone who deals with the environment. These are all things that are more now than then. I think fundamentally that's why we've never heard of him. And the other thing is, and I can't stress this enough, Pruitt got a lot of places by being phenomenally good looking. And we tend, I think, to assume that people like that aren't serious. Uh, but, um, you know, he was he was constantly being painted as a lovely 
painting by Dorothy Brett of him. He was having sculptures done of him and he played it up wonderfully. He'd go around topless on Sienna Coloured Horse in the grounds of Lady Ottoline's stately home. And, you know, he was someone trading on the idea that he was Indigenous and trading on his sexuality to fool rich, rich and literary elite types. And that's a story that that um, is, is more now than then as, as well. It's only now in this era of boundaries where we're all obsessed with who can and can't speak and what migrant can and can't mi- migrate. Uh, uh, he's a person who, who trashed boundaries and, and used his powers of all sorts, literary, sexual, and, and in, in terms of masquerade, to get to places where he probably couldn't or shouldn't have been. So that's very much a story for for today. He's a man of our times. And I love the thought that we're just beginning to broaden the idea of who wrote poetry in in 1914 and onwards. And, you know, there's more women's voices now coming to the fore and more complex characters like Pruitt, who, quite frankly, were patriotic um, and also were sexually ambivalent. And also were um, chancers, this is how you would put, put the word, who are interesting, much more multidimensional, shall we say, than, than the conventional story. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work and obviously read the book and learn more about Frank Pruitt? Well, if you go on trudyspaces.com, there'll be a section on my work and my latest thing. Um, there's actually seven or eight podgra- podcasts on there. Um, there's been a lovely Signal House magazine uh, article done on him and with an interview with me and uh, original artwork inspired by Pruitt's poetry. So there's increasing amounts out there and the book itself has been well reviewed. I've been approached by people wanting to do movies or TV shows, God knows if anything will come of that, but it is a story that would lend itself marvellously to, to, to visual representation, not least because he was so visual. And of course, you can, you can buy this biography, Trauma, Primitivism and the First World War by me, Joy Porter, and that will be a great start in learning more about Frank Pruitt. And I think he inspires things. He's someone that I find that people read about him and then, then they want to, to recreate his era, his crowd, his scene, the time, and the psychoanalytic context he operated in. They also want to think about his ethnicity, his masquerade. Um, they're fascinated. He's just fascinating. The more you think about Pruitt and what it means. He upends how you normally think about the First World War and how you normally think about gender and class because he's church mouse poor, but living through philanthropy. And I think we're in an era of living through philanthropy again for artists. And I also think we're living through an era of rearmament. Uh, And he was also reasonably racist on, on many levels and I think you can see so many resonances with with now and um, he just gives you a lens that's much more fulsome than anything I think that's been written about the more conventional figures that you you get fed the Wilfred Owen um, and a lot of poets who die very young 
you know, when a, when a poet survives the experience of war, I think that's when the real story starts. How do you cope with having been in the trenches and having lived with death for three or four years? How do you cope with fundamental upheaval? And of course, a pandemic afterwards, and he nearly dies from his own pandemic. So there's just so much about his story that speaks to today. that I, That's why I find him so fascinating. Joy, thank you very much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.